Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to the Show Cloud podcast for April. Um, we've got three nice topics to discuss this month. Um, we're going to try and give you the insights that you need to take away back to your organizations to things that you can do right away to help strengthen your security posture or maybe give some food for thought. Um, as always, I'm joined by Hugh Rayner. Hello. And we're also joined by Aaron Dowdswell as well. Hi there, everyone. Good. So the topics we've got in uh, for this month's episode. So we're going to talk about the, the C3X supply chain attack. So this is not like brand new information. It's kind of a couple of weeks old now. And we're not necessarily going to do the full what's happened kind of situation because there are reports out there and there are re- the company themselves have released an article to say this is what's happened. Um, so we're not going to go down that path. Um, but what we're going to do to talk about a little bit more about supply chain attacks in general. So what are the risks posed to businesses by them? How do they work? How do they operate? And then some things that you can take away and start to, to think about internally. You know, how do we mitigate this risk ultimately? The second topic we're going to talk about is an article or a piece of research actually that's been done by uh, Akamai um, around uh, DNS traffic and specifically malicious DNS traffic. And there's some interesting stats in there around how many organizations have seen malicious DNS traffic um, on their networks. Uh, so we'll do a little deep dive into why that's important. You know, what does it mean for organizations who have malicious DNS traffic and so on and so forth. And then the third topic is quite hot now, I suppose, at this point. It's quite a few months since it got released, but we're going to talk about ChatGPT, not specifically can it replace us, people, and jobs that we do, but more specifically the risks that it might pose to your company. So are your employees using it for the day-to-day jobs? You know, what are the privacy implications there? What are the risks that might be posed by using an external AI service with sensitive company data? So we'll try and cover them uh, pieces. Again, give you some insights to take away, some things to think about. Shall we get to it, guys? Absolutely. All right, let's go for it. So first and foremost, um, the supply chain attacks, the C3X. Um, so this is a VoIP piece of software that sits, that all, you know, enterprises and organizations are using quite widely by the looks of it as well. And there's been a supply chain attack. So Hugh, you know, we're a little late to this one in terms of bringing the news out, but it's not our news to bring out ultimately. And there's quite a lot of bit of information out there. So would you be able to just give us the, the very high level view of the top three bullet points of what's gone off? Yeah, so supply chain attack is quite interesting, isn't it? So the uh, C3X themselves have, have been compromised. And then the, the attackers have then gone in and modified some of the files used in the, you know, the, the automatic updater and the installer, some of the DLL files that are, that are used in those applications. So then when, when that update gets pulled through to a user's machine, that malicious DLL file is run, and that then uh, goes away and pulls down some more code, um, some additional bits from GitHub and things like that, and basically then allows um, for for malicious command execution, file transfer, all all of that sort of thing. So whilst the attack itself is on the C3X desktop application, it's not really C3X that they're trying to compromise. You know, it's the users of that application. And as you said, you know, it's very widespread used VoIP in, in a lot of organizations. So that's where the real value is to the attackers there. So it's almost a one hit of an organization that then rolls out into everybody else ultimately. Yeah, exactly right. So it's a lot more effort to get in there. You have to, you know, specifically target an organization. You have to do some, you know, significant engineering and getting that set up. You know, they also did some quite smart things like use the Windows native encryption functionality so that the malicious code could only be decrypted on the infected host. So, you know, that really goes to make sort of incident response more difficult. But obviously the benefit is that is a lot of work, but you've only got to do it once. And then you've got, you know, almost the entire user base of that application 
as easy targets, really. Okay, thanks, you. Um, Aaron, just bring you in here on this one. That anatomy, attack anatomy, compromiser, an organization that then rolls down, is that the extent of supply chain attacks or can they take on the various forms? You know, what, what, what would you take away from and how would you describe a, a supply chain attack? Yeah, supply chain attacks are a pretty broad terminology, really. It's, it's any attack where you as an organization are dealing with a third party, a supplier, if it may be its services or products, software, whatever it might be. When you're working with those third party suppliers, they are part of your supply chain. So a supply chain attack is where one of those third party organizations or potentially even a fourth party organization, so a partner of a partner, gets compromised, but it has a tangible security impact on your organization. So the typical examples of that would be if you're procuring a piece of software that you use as online storage, for example, if that third party organization, that cloud hosted service, for example, stores your sensitive data, if they're compromised, could that mean that that data that you store with that organization be compromised? So that's really the extent of a third party attack anywhere where you as an organization are interacting and exchanging things of a sensitive nature with another organization, there is some element of a supply chain there and supply chain risk. And that could be products as well, right? If you're procuring routers, switches, computers, what's happening before they reach your organization as part of that delivery and supply chain to your organization. Okay, thanks, Aaron. So basically, it's any attack that might affect your supply chain or your vendors that you are using or your vendors' vendors, ultimately. Exactly, yeah. Okay, perfect. Here we've seen a few of these previously. So immediate examples are SolarWinds, Kaseya, I think is how you pronounce it. Um, so they're two obvious, really high-profile ones. How does this one stack up against that? And what's the risk to organizations right now from the supply chain side? Oh, we were saying supply chain attacks, I think they're going to become more more prevalent as, as time goes on. Phishing is, is probably the biggest thing right now, right, in its various guises. But it's a lot more prevalent. The awareness around that sort of thing is a lot greater. And like Aaron said, you know, we can be exploiting these sort of technology links through through service vendors, product vendors, but even just trust relationships that you have with supply chains. You know, organizations have huge supply chains of various tiers of suppliers, sizes of organizations. Even if you just exploit that trust relationship, you compromise a, you know, a small sort of five-person recruitment consultancy. If your target organization is used to receiving CVs as attachments from this recruitment consultancy, that's a really good in for you. They're already used to receiving these files. And, and, you know, it's a really, I think, really interesting avenue of attack, things like that. So, yes, certainly we've seen, you know, SolarWinds, obviously a massive widespread impact there, providing, you know, really, really detailed sort of network information to attackers. I think the reward of these supply chain attacks is really, really great and probably, you know, well, almost certainly, in my opinion, you're worth that initial investment in the more effort you need to put in. Excellent. Thanks, you. Um, Aaron, as a defender of an organization, what can people do who might be listening to this now to get on top of their supply chain, the risks that might be posed from it? You know, what, what's the kind of top three things that they should go away and do now? Yeah, well, the short answer is it's really tricky, right? We SolarWinds is a really good example of where major organizations, you know, the Microsofts, the Cisco's, the, those big organizations that everyone has heard of, even they were affected by this third party breach. And and so it's a tricky one to completely mitigate and say, right, we're, we no longer have supply chain risk because we've done X, Y, and Z or taken away three things. But there are, of course, a number of things you can do to minimize that risk and be prepared for when a situation like that does occur. So the first one, of course, is supplier due diligence, right? So making sure that every third party that you go into business with, you conduct a, a third party risk assessment against them. So you're doing some third party risk management overall. 
And that would include doing things like validating the level of access they might have to your systems, the data that you're comfortable or likely to need to store with them or share with them. It would also be things like ensuring that you understand their deployment processes. If it's a, a software rollout, for example, or if they're providing software to you, how do they deploy their software? What's their CI, CD chain? Who has access? Push code into production. Those sorts of things would be done as part of that third-party risk management to make sure that you're comfortable as an organization, that this third party is doing sensible things with the data that you're going to be using or the product or service that you're going to be consuming from them. There's also the other side, make sure you've got solid contractual obligations in place, so SLAs and the terms of your, your contract and payouts in case of breaches and things like that. And also repeat those processes regularly as well. Like you don't just do a, a risk assessment at the beginning, onboard them, and then never talk to your supplier again about the risk they're posing to you. In most organizations, this would be annual or potentially if you tier your suppliers. So if you've got a, a really important supplier, maybe you call that a tier one supplier and you do assessments on them more frequently and you ask them more questions and you ask for more evidence and, and more processes in place to support yourselves when you're dealing with that supplier. Versus a, maybe what you would consider a low tier supplier, whereby actually you just use them for some marketing outreach. They don't have any sensitive information. So you only ask them a few questions. That level of due diligence can be much lower. All of that, I think, fits into perhaps the most important piece is that sooner or later, one of your third party suppliers, someone in your supply chain will be compromised. So you need to be prepared for that eventuality. And that comes down to making sure that your preparedness fits alongside things like your incident response plans and your business continuity plans. So as an example, you'd want to know who owns this piece of software internally in our business, who owns that business relationship, who has the ability to turn it off if we need to, if it, if it suddenly poses a risk to our organization because our third party has been compromised, who understands that software and can investigate it as an example to start understanding if we've been impacted by the third party that's been compromised. And then finally, all of that is if we have to stop using it, what redundancies do we have in place? Where are our backups? How can we fall back to another piece of software or another piece of hardware to support ourselves whilst we try and get to the bottom of what's going on with this particular supply issue? So a lot to do. It comes down to having asset lists, various other things. No easy answer for this, but preparing as part of your broader organization strategy and approach to security is, is largely how you manage it. Okay, perfect. So it's a holistic approach that covers not just writing them down and these are the supplies we've got, but also going into some varying degrees of depth of assessments, risk assessing, asking for evidence. And there's, there's also, I'm aware there's, there's kind of tools out there. So you can you know, look at things like, and, and we're not endorsing these by the way, but things like BitSight and Security Scorecard and, and so on and so forth. They can play a, you know, a part in that initial bit of information you might gather from a, or around a supplier. So Hugh, I don't know if you wanted to come in there and, and maybe comment on, on the, the level of information you get from that type of thing, you know, would they be useful in this, in, in this situation? Yeah. So I think it's a case of, so I know bits like, for instance, what re returns a security score for an organization, you know, across various sort of metrics. I don't necessarily think that that number is the most valuable thing you get out of that. Right. But the, so the sort of additional information that you can get, like seeing the number of sort of external vulnerability exposures that an organization has and how that trend changes over time is useful for giving you an idea of how an organization approaches security. You know, if we're seeing the security score is really good, they've got good practice, like um, security contacts available and things like that. It just shows that that, that supplier is, is likely to be more mature and therefore, you know, a safer bet. But realistically, without like, like Aaron says, these sort of contractual requirements and right of audit and things like that over your suppliers, 
it's hard to know what's going on internally. And all you can do is really fire off to all these, you know, public data scraping APIs, checking for staff members at that organization, have their email addresses featuring in breach databases, things like that. They paint a picture of how things might be like, but, you know, there's no real way of, of seeing what's behind the curtain unless you um, have these right of audits and things that, that Aaron was discussing. Excellent. Thanks, guys. We'll move on to the next topic. So we're going to talk about DNS, specifically the um, piece of research Akamai have done to suggest that over one in 10 businesses have malware traffic on their network, predominantly using the, the not in, in this instance, using the, the DNS protocol. Some alarming enough stats in there, you know, if you've read the piece of research, I would suggest it's probably a decent read. And if you're running, you're running a network or you're responsible for security at an organization, it's probably worthwhile having a look. But let's try and take it back a step. So Hugh, could you just tell us what DNS is and why is it important for an organization? Yeah, so DNS is used for, you know, domain name resolution. So you type in google.com and DNS will go away, it will look locally, then it will look in, you know, or, on your network itself and on your domain controller and then it will this is the crucial part go out to the internet if it doesn't have that record locally and ask the internet you know where is this host so it's really useful for attackers right because without dns you know unless you're only accessing local resources you can't really function so dns is highly prevalent it's in you know almost every network so it's a good one to rely on and like i mentioned it needs to be able to send those requests externally and get out to the internet, which obviously, you know, we recommend firewalling, things like that. You wouldn't expect protocols like Telnet or something that, that you might set up a command and control, or not a command and control, but a command execution shell through through Telnet. You wouldn't expect that to be able to traverse a network boundary, right? You're not going to allow that. But DNS, you sort of have to, right? So that's why DNS is is really valuable for an attacker here because you can send data and send requests to certain URLs. And that is then how they're transferring that malicious traffic normally to, you know, pull down maybe a, a further payload or something onto a machine. Thanks, you. So it's, it's prevalent. It's everywhere. It traverses boundaries because that's the design of it, inherent design of it. And yeah, as you mentioned, their attackers are, are using it in, in as part of their attack anatomy. It's a little bit, well, I suppose there's limitations, right? So the, the size of things you can send to a DNS channels limited compared to other protocols i guess it's speed wise it, you it's unusual to throw a lot of traffic through a dns tunnel i guess but you could do i suppose and this this kind of mentioned it, the piece of research mentioned the presence of c2 traffic so command and control traffic in, in this instance which can be through dns indicates the possibility of an attack in progress or a breach okay so that's uh, i guess that's pretty alarming stuff um aaron i'll bring you in here how would you detect malicious DNS traffic? What kind of abilities or what kind of tooling can you put in place to, to start to look for this essentially needle in a haystack, right, I guess? It very much can be. So actually, it fundamentally comes back to what is your organization doing to control the DNS traffic going inbound and outbound from users and systems to begin with? Some organizations, they, they don't use their own DNS services internally. They're quite happy to use one of the publicly available ones. You know, Everyone knows 8.8.8.8 is a really popular Google provided DNS service. And it's it's one that a lot of system administrators, myself included in the past, have said, right, I want to check DNS works. I'll just put Google's DNS in and, and test with it. So realistically, it's down to what visibility and control do we have as an organization? And once you've got some level of visibility and control, much like you might want to be proxying web traffic, much like you want to, as you mentioned, use a firewall to restrict outbound ports, an organization should really be at least monitoring and 
acting as that gateway for DNS. So that's where services like protected DNS come into play and the various providers out there that allow you as an organization to have a internal DNS service that might call out to an external provider that's actually doing all the the detection capabilities and the filtering for you. But you as an organization then have some level of control and usually a dashboard and you can decide which DNS requests we want to allow outbound and inbound. So we might, for example, block access to phishing domains and, and known malware domains or adult sites or content for you know illegal file sharing. Those sorts of things can then be blocked at the DNS level. And you would get the dashboard to show the visibility of what DNS requests are going outbound or, or being made. Uh, and then you can start to categorize. You can start to then understand the particular hosts that are making those DNS requests. And it's a really, really useful tool for identifying the early stages of an attack. If you can detect or block those initial outbound DNS requests to try and resolve a malicious domain, then you've effectively stopped that command and control that Hugh mentioned before it's ever reached its destination so that the the attacker has no way to get their command back into the network. So there are ways to have pretty thorough oversight of your DNS. However, many organizations ignore it as part of their security posture. Thanks, Aaron. Final question on this one. If you do spot DNS, let's say you go and start to look at it and maybe uh, maybe start to, to analyze what's happening on the network, and you do spot some malicious or what you think is malicious DNS traffic, does that mean that you are already compromised? Not necessarily. So it would depend on, you know, you'd have to do some investigation. If it's something that you're seeing multiple requests go outbound and they're not being blocked, then possibly, yes, you need to take some action, investigate where those requests were going, where they came from, what they were related to, so that, you know, there's the risk. However, these DN, you know, much like any other security event is the way I would treat it, you know, in a malicious DNS request, a security event, it requires some investigation and proof to say, okay, have we or haven't we been compromised? What's this request doing? Was it blocked? Is it actually just something we, we don't want someone, they've gone to a dating site and we don't allow dating sites, for example. So there's an element of triage and maturity of understanding of what these requests are before you can resolutely say, yes, we've been compromised or no, we haven't been compromised because we've seen a malicious outbound request. Right. So we'll move on to third topic of uh, the briefing, which is chat GPT. So I guess, particularly in the world that we operate in, IT, cybersecurity, all that kind of good stuff. Unless you've had your head in the sand for the last few months, you're probably going to be aware of what chat GPT is, or at least have heard of it, I guess. You know, it's in the news. I don't know how often, but maybe it's the news I read, but it's in the news quite regular. There's been a couple of EU countries that have kind of moved to I guess the clickbaity title suggests it's been blocked, but there are obviously a little bit of reasoning behind why that might be access might be getting restricted and so on and so forth. So beyond the risk of it kind of taking our jobs and perhaps we'll have a, an AI driven cyber threat briefing in few in future months, if it continues to, to go at the pace it's going at, maybe, we'll, maybe the three of us will be out of a, out of a, a month for job. What are the risks to businesses now with chat GPT? You know, let's assume that you're, you're a leader in an organization or you're responsible for security in an organization and you get wind that employees are starting to use chat GPT for enabling them in their roles. Maybe they can do their job a bit quicker. So we'll leave this, I'll open this one to the group. So I don't know, you, maybe you can come in first and we'll bring Aaron in uh, second of all, but what's your, what are the risks at the minute that we see, you know, what we think might be there from, from using AI in general and chat GPT specifically? Yeah, sure. So I think probably the primary risk at the moment, if your employees are using ChatGPT, is that the work will be poor quality, right? ChatGPT will extremely confidently regurgitate just completely incorrect information for you, especially if you're if from a from a sort of technology standpoint. If you're asking it to you know look at code, develop code, 
it's really good at sort of, you know, if you ask it to write Python for you, it's, it's really good at building a framework, starting you off, but by no means, I don't, I don't think I'd expect anything substantial to work from the off. Obviously, from the flip side, not looking at employees, it also helps attackers um, develop exploits and things like that. You know, they can say, oh, I found this service running, write me an exploit for this vulnerability, this CVE. And yeah, again, it will give them a, a little kickstart there. But realistically, I think, you know, the benefits that ChatGPT is going to offer and AI in general, especially ChatGPT4, which has things like image recognition and, and processing and things like that. Just thinking about what that might be useful for could be really good. You know, imagine giving giving the AI a, a network diagram and saying, "Is this a good network architecture? What are my weak points here? What what's likely to go wrong?" Things like that are fantastic, right? I see I see a lot more positive applications of this than negative and reasons to be concerned. Excellent. So you think we might be scratching the surface so far? What what's possible? And it might get better. It should get better in future. Excellent. Good. Siren, you're, um, you're our VC, so here at ShowCloud, what's the, um, let's say for argument's sake, Hugh has popped a, an architecture diagram into ChatGPT and we've asked it for some input. What's the risk here? Where, where are we? Have we, got a, have we got a data privacy issue? Have we got any other issues that we need to consider? Yeah, that's exactly the other side to this is the data privacy and potentially copyright infringement issues as well. As Hugh mentioned, ChatGPT will quite confidently grab something from somewhere and, and tell you it. Whether that's true or not, it's hard to verify at times. And in fact, there is a defamation case from an Australian that uh, is currently ongoing against OpenAI, the organization that um, created ChatGPT, whereby ChatGPT was confidently telling people that he was a convicted criminal when actually he was the whistleblower that had reported the convicted criminal. So there's a defamation case in the making there. So there's the misinformation piece, but the privacy piece, you know, to uploading architecture diagrams, things like that. Absolutely. You need to be careful around whether what you are allowing your employees to share with a cloud hosted service such as OpenAI is something you're actually happy for them to do. You know, it's this sensitive corporate information. Do you even have the right to share this with another third party? But to, you know, to Hugh's comments around, we're, we're only just at the beginning of this curve, if you like, or at least we don't know where in this curve of adoption of chat GPT and other large language models and, and AI and machine learning, we don't really know how far along we are. And I'm of the same opinion of you that ultimately it's likely to have a benefit in the long term. You know, we already use third-party organizations to store and host data. It's part of business. You know, We have supply chains. We've already discussed that in this. And I suspect in the longer term, these sorts of AI models are likely to fit within that supply chain in some form. Or you'll have on-premise equivalents of the way you do on-premise. You know, if, if you've got a, a situation where you, you're not comfortable with the risk of sharing externally, you'll be able to have on-premise compute machines of an AI model that can do things to aid your organization or automate things for you. So much like you know, computers, the internet, cell phones, whatever, have helped humanity progress, be more productive and efficient. I think AI are probably in a, in a similar vein to that in a new technology, a new way forward for humanity to efficiently work and hopefully make our lives a little bit easier and access to information sharing easier as well. But we have those privacy considerations. These organizations that have AI models are all quite new. They're quite immature. And it possibly leads on to the next topic, as it were, within this around what are Italy and other countries doing around potentially limiting companies like OpenAI in the short term, whilst we try and overcome some of the privacy concerns and data concerns and just the maturity concerns, perhaps, with that data and, and how it's being processed and stored. Yeah, I mean, specifically, the Italy one was 
is related to GDPR. And I think also maybe Spain in the last couple of days have mentioned maybe restricting access to the platform or at least the, the functionality for that kind of thing. And I guess the question I might put back to you two is, is the GDPR suitable for this current use case? You know, obviously that there's been a lot of innovation in the background since GDPR was, was written and pulled together. Is it now fit for purpose? Does it need a reiteration of what to do in the sense of, of an AI piece of technology? Yeah, I'm happy to come in on that one first and say GDPR is, is the major driver actually behind the, the Italy case. I think the Italy's concerns focused around three things, if I'm not mistaken. I think they were concerned about the lack of age verification, firstly. So the fact that children under the age of 13 could freely use ChatGPT and gain access to potentially explicit, adult-related, other content. The other two things were around the the massive data collection that goes on. So all of your conversations you have with ChatGPT in particular may not be true for all language models, of course, but with ChatGPT in particular, it's logging those, it's using those to further its learning. And there was a case uh, where some of that has, OpenAI has already been compromised. There's already been a data breach there. And some of this information got out and included chat titles, included email addresses and names of the people that were talking to the ChatGPT AI and so, you know, there's embarrassment there for individuals. And does that na- data really need to be stored? So there is that privacy implication as well. And then finally, it was the point that we've already covered that Italy had the concern around the misinformation, that access to false information or information that might be under copyright that shouldn't be shared and then reused. So there are sort of those three things that from a privacy perspective really um, hit home and align quite closely with some of the, the restrictions in the GDPR. And at the moment, there's a lot of news going around saying Italy has banned ChatGPT. No, they've opened an investigation, which means that OpenAI as an organization have 20 days to respond to the requests that Italy, I think Spain now, have sent out. And I suspect actually this will broaden to most countries that have an equivalent of GDPR. So EU GDPR, UK GDPR, and some other countries across the world that have a similar framework in place. They will be asking the same questions. And it may well be in the short term that OpenAI ceases to operate in those countries. But that's not to say OpenAI are putting the brakes on it. The EU or Italy are trying to say no to AI. It's just a matter of let's look at this from a privacy perspective. What can we do to align what you're doing as an organization with privacy interests of the citizens of our countries? And I'm sure within the next few months, we'll see OpenAI come back with revised terms, with a new approach to how they handle data, which is going to be a net positive from both an adoption perspective, because people will feel more comfortable. I think I know I would, as a citizen, feel more comfortable knowing that OpenAI have a more mature approach to data privacy. And then the organization, the countries such as Italy and Spain and the rest of the EU, for example, will also feel more confident dealing with an organization like OpenAI and allowing them to to process citizen data. So it's just part of that maturity journey for these relatively new companies that are finding their way, you know, these new technologies coming to the sector, poorly regulated. Maybe there will need to be some updates to GDPR and organization internal policies as well to catch up with a new technological development like this. Brilliant. Thanks, Aaron. So guys, I think we're probably out of time there um, for this episode. It feels like we could talk about ChatGPT a bit longer, so maybe we'll come back with a, uh, a different episode in, in future, or maybe a specialist episode of AI in, in cyber or AI in something or other. But yeah, so I think that probably wraps us up for this episode. Um, thanks everyone for tuning in as always and listening. We shall see you in a month's time, hopefully not replaced by AI-generated characters, um, but perhaps it will be if we go out the pace we've been going at. We'll see you all in a month's time. So thanks everyone and uh, see you next time. Thanks all. Cheers. Bye.